0: We look to the Lord this morning for his word, and it's Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through verse 8. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not, have, do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is the word of God. Thank you, Pastor Ken. By the way, I'm so glad that I did not accept your invitation to participate in the actual dedication, for you do this with such a profound meaning and such tender feeling. You know, among other things, dedications are really about placing or I would say even anchoring a child into a faith community. Why am I so certain that Evelyn and Matthew have been placed into a wonderful faith community. My main hobby is eating. (laughs) And your brunches here, your Sunday brunches, are such a fantastic community-building exercise, aren't they? The children not only can eat together, but they can also play together. As adults, we have the occasion to really share in each other's lives. I found out that most people can talk best with their full. <laughs> By the way, have you noticed how many times Scripture talks about eating? The Bible is full of banquets. The only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. 5, and what I find the most amazing is that Jesus ate with sinners. Are both mics or Jesus ate with sinners. Do you want to be like Jesus? Then you should make sure that there's always a sinner at your table. That is why I always eat with my wife. But, <laughs> but more seriously, who we eat with actually says a lot about ourselves. At these brunches, you have a practical way of really welcoming visitors. There's also the opportunity to get to know regular church members on a much deeper level. But I know that not only the branches lead to a feeling of community here, there are also many other things. As Pastor Ken mentioned, we co-hosted a tour to Bible Lands, and I found out that Ken and Mark are very much community-minded. You are very caring people. And then, of course, Pastor Nord was a former student of mine. Already as a student, he loved to talk and to really <laughs> create friendships with other people. He loved to talk so much, especially when I was a lecturer. <laughs> At the time, sometimes I did not appreciate it so much. How blind of me. <laughs> what he was really doing was honing his pastoral skills so that he became the great conversationalist he is today. And then I also know Mel- Melanie, of course, your children's, children's ministry director, right? She is the sister of our fabulous son-in-law, Randy Rust. And so they all come from very much community-minded stock. And then today, it was so nice to see you, Lorraine, leading the worship. You're one of the former students who really was so joyful. And I see other students here and a fellow faculty member. This is really like a reunion for me. So without doubt, our precious Evelyn has been dedicated to God and placed into a loving church community. And judging by little Matthew, where is Matthew again? I don't see him here. Where, where are you sitting? Oh, right there. And judging by little Matthew and also all the other toddlers around here, I'm sure that Evelyn will have a lot of friends in this church. Now, while it is clear to me that you already are a very much community-minded church, Perhaps there is ever so little room for improvement. Is there maybe just a little bit? Why should we always try to grow in this area? It is not simply for the joy of belonging to a great church, but it has been my experience that what draws people the most to Christ is a loving Christian community. There is so much loneliness in this world. People are longing. To belong to a caring community. Soon you will move to a new area of Edmonton. And it's probably an appropriate time to remind ourselves of the great potential God has given to us to be a loving faith community. To learn about building community, I find the one another passages in Paul's or Paul's letters very helpful. In Romans 12 to 12.5, the passage that was read for us, Paul states, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That all of us belong together is really a fact to be celebrated. Our common faith in Christ can create an instant bond of friendship." While we should also foster friendships with non-Christians, very often our best friends are fellow believers, aren't they? And I'm sure that all of us have experienced the joy of meeting other Christians on vacation or in business travel. I'm reminded of a trip I once took as a seminary student from Vancouver to Wilmer, North Dakota by train. I sat in the dome car reading my Greek New Testament A Christian couple was so impressed, they bought me dinner. (laughs) It was the first time that I realized that learning Greek could be advantageous. (laughs) The mere fact that we are assembled here shows that we really do appreciate community. But how can we grow even closer to each other? Paul goes on to say in Romans 15, Accept one another just as Christ accepted You. Christian community cannot be built if it is based, if acceptance is based on a very narrow and selfish set of expectations. That would lead to the building of a club. To build a faith community, we have to accept each other just as Christ accepted us. And you know what? When Jesus took his disciples, did he expect perfection? They were a pretty rowdy bunch, weren't they? Sure, he expected change. He wanted them to grow. But he did not expect perfection as an entrance requirement. He was not in a hurry. Actually, Jesus loved sinners. A book by a Jewish scholar and rabbi by the name Montefiore left a major impression on me. He asked the following question. By the way, rabbis love to ask questions. Once a rabbi was asked, why do you always answer a question with another question? He answered, why not? So, back to the question. Montefiore asked, what was the main difference that the ordinary Jewish person would have noticed in comparing Jesus to the Pharisees. We would probably come up with all sorts of theological things, wouldn't we? Montefiore came to the conclusion that the main difference the ordinary person would have noticed between Jesus and the Pharisees was that the Pharisees wanted sinners to come to them, whereas Jesus went to sinners. Why do we so often As Christians hate the Pharisees so much, is it because we're just like them? (laughs) Do we want non-Christians to come to us on our terms? And once they've been baptized, do we expect them to be perfect? That does not build community. Just like Jesus, Paul also recognized this fact. And he writes in Romans 14.1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Not everything should become a point of contention in the church. According to Matthew 7, 1, Jesus even said, Judge not. This is a very strong statement. Yes, ultimate judgment belongs to God. Now is the time of salvation. Salvation not condemnation. In the body of Christ, we must be slow to judge. Why? Because God can actually change people. I found this out the hard way. When I started teaching, I had a tendency to stereotype seminary students. And after I've been proven wrong quite a number of times, I gave up this practice. Now, I especially like the students who are the troublemakers. I have former students here, so I'm avoiding eye contact. (laughs) The troublemakers have the potential for becoming either the best or the worst pastors. It all depends on whether finally they will allow all their raw energy to be shaped by God or used selfishly. And, of course, shaped by God, right? (laughs) In order to build the church, we must be slow to judge. God can change people. We have to give him a chance. Do I advocate absolute tolerance in the church? Of course not. There are limits. While in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, judge not. A few verses later, he says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. This passage says that there are some limits to tolerance. Yet even this truth has to be applied sparingly. In my youthful exuberance, I once used this verse in a way that I still regret. My first career was as a seismologist and magnetician. I worked up in Baker Lake. By the way, the weather this weekend brings back such happy memories of Baker Lake. So I'm thankful for that. The government had supplied me with a very large house, so I often had visitors. And once, a German television crew stayed with me for three, four days. And when they discovered that I was a Christian, they started to poke fun at me. And after one really offensive comment, they asked, now what do you say to this? And I snapped back, the Bible says, do not throw your pearls before pigs. And it sounds even worse than German. German. This ended the ridicule. But in retrospect, it was a bit harsh. Sort of fun, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are limits to tolerance. We should take a dim view of people who break all the Ten Commandments. One or two is enough. But if in doubt, forgive. The corporate nature of the Church is fostered by recognizing that we are members one of another and that we should accept each other as we wander along the way to Christian maturity. And what is a very simple, yet a very important way of showing acceptance? Paul says in Romans sixteen sixteen, greet one another. A heartfelt greeting can do marvels in building community. Especially when people remember our name, right? I really love that last century Gordon Lightfoot song, Did She Mention My Name? And Paul goes on to explain how we should greet each other. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. My father was an evangelist in Poland, and there the Christian men kissed each other smack bang on the lips. Whenever his friends visited, I ran for cover. I have a very high view of scripture, but allow me to change one word. Let's change kiss to hug. Let North American Baptists be known as holy huggers. Hugs can do marvels. My wife found a really good poem for me. It comes from a source that is closest to the Bible itself, the Farmer's Almanac. And it goes as follows. It's wonderful what a hug can do. A hug can cheer you when you're blue. A hug can say, I love you so. Or, gee, I hate to see you go. A hug is welcome back again and great to see you where you've been. A hug can soothe the small child's pain and bring a rainbow after rain. The hug, there's just no doubt about it. We scarcely could survive without it. A hug delights and warms and charms. It must be why God gave us arms. Hugs are great for fathers and mothers, sweet for sisters, swell for brothers. And chances are your favorite ants like them more than potted plants. Kittens crave them, puppies love them, heads of state are not above, above them. A hug can break the language barrier and make your travel so much merrier. No need to fret about your store of them. The more you give, the more there's more of them. So stretch those arms without delay and give one, someone a hug today. A number of years ago, I had a great lesson in hugging. My wife and I were on a mission trip to Brazil and every time I preached, it seemed like I got hugged by half the congregation. For one of the, there were 1,400 people there. And that was a lot of hugging. <laughs> the Brazilian Christians are very demonstrative and warm. They love their church. Hugging is not just an empty ritual for them. It is really something that shows acceptance and shows something about the joy of the kingdom that Jesus so often talks about. And once we've created an atmosphere of acceptance, once we treasure the corporate nature of the church, then we can talk about the thorny issues of authority and accountability. And Ephesians 5.21, Paul states, submit to one another. In the Church as the body of Christ, various parts have special functions, and one of them is leadership. And once leaders are democratically chosen by the congregation, they have the authority to make decisions, and their decisions must be respected. Certainly, once in a while, a decision can be questioned. However, if not submitting to leadership becomes a lifestyle, then there is something gravely wrong. When it comes to submission, we should not just think of ourselves, but the greater good of the church. In addition to submission, to genuine leadership, we must also be accountable for our decisions in general. Paul says in Colossians 3, admonish one another. An important part of being a member of the body of Christ is to accept valid criticism. When we are admonished, it's not a sign that we should change churches, but maybe that we should change our actions and our thinking. Accountability is a vital part of church life. It must be noted, however, that Paul qualifies admonishing. He says, to admonish one another with all wisdom. It takes a lot of sensitivity to warn and correct and confront other people. But it must be done. While there should always be more, well, praise should be more. There are more praise than criticism. But there is a place for correcting. But it must be done in the right spirit. If you enjoy correcting other people, you're not qualified to do so. Let me repeat this. (laughs) If you enjoy correcting other people, you are not qualified to do so. It must hurt a bit. On the other hand, most churches have plenty of people who have the gift of judging and correcting others. So if you have the gift of acceptance and tolerance, use it exclusively. This way, the divine balance between acceptance and admonishing will be achieved in your church. In the true body of Christ, authority and accountability must be practiced. But it can only be done well if we heed Paul's advice in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. Simply stated, it means that we should show basic respect for each other. What about the place of doctrine within the church? Paul says, Romans 15.5, be of the same mind with one another. Is doctoral unity really possible? Yes, but only if we stress the the major instead of the minor. I'm sure that some of us here know way too much controversial theology. And church history has shown that this divides the body of Christ. Perhaps the clearest example of this is in the doctrine of eschatology, you know, the doctrine of the last things. I heard of one Christian accountant who thought that he had discovered the true meaning of the number of the beast, you know, 666. He said it was definitely the GST. And he said eventually it would be pegged at 6.66%. If this type of prophetic speculation makes you excited, <laughs> then you will bring this unity to the body of Christ. The Bi- Bible does not command us to go into all the world and hold prophecy seminars, but to proclaim the gospel. That is what it's all about. So let's agree on basics. Jesus will come again. There will be a resurrection and the judgment of the living and the dead There's a heaven and a hell. Jesus will come like the thief in the night, and let's be ready. Let's be of the same mind as we stress basic theology. And once we are convinced of the corporate nature of the body of Christ, once we respect authority and practice accountability, once we commit ourselves to agree on basic theology, then. We can become a truly caring community. And Paul tells us also to encourage one another. I challenge you to build your reputation on encouraging and complimenting other people. By the way, can you take a compliment graciously? Somebody says to you, that's a nice outfit you are wearing. Do you right away say, I got it on sale? No, just say thank you. And Paul continues, serve one another. So often we stress servant leadership and then put all the stress on leadership. No, it should be servant. And true leaders know when to follow and when to lead. In serving others, you should try some random acts of kindness. Hold the door open, even if that means we have to linger for a while. Men, don't wait until you have enough money to buy 12 roses. I found out that one rose does the trick just as well as a dozen. <laughs> we are to serve each other even to the extent what Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And I'm sure many of us have experienced the loving help of others. Times of crisis, that so often pride gets in the way. And now let me come to the last one another passage that I want to cover, and I think it's the most crucial, and that is love one another. This is the most used one another passage in the New Testament. And since John is known as the beloved disciple, let's turn to him. By the way, which gospel tells us that John is the beloved disciple? Only the gospel of John, none of the others, but I believe it (laughs) anyway. So according to John 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you, a command, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus says love is not an option. Love is a command." But have you noticed, of all the four Gospels, which one stresses love the most? It's definitely the Gospel of John. And I ask myself the question, why does John stress love so much in comparison to the other Gospels? Why does he feel so strongly about love? I have a feeling that it has something to do with the history of his own church. And tradition tells us the church in Ephesus was John's church. And in the book of Revelation, we're told Ephesus is one of the seven churches. That Ephesus at first appears to be a vibrant church. It is persistent in good deeds, has great orthodox belief, even willing to endure persecution. So it seems to be a church of the year candidate. But God says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And we would say, good deeds, sound theology, willingness to endure persecution must outweigh love, right? So if you lose a bit of love, maybe the most is a little slap on the wrist, right? Not quite. God says, remember the height you have fallen. Repent. If you do not repent, I will wipe out the church. And he did. Nothing can take the place of love. And Paul says this too, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, no matter what gifts we have or what we do, without love, everything is useless. He even says, our faith is useless without love. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Your faith is useless without love. So let me close by sharing John's final sermon. Tradition tells us when John was already very old, he was asked once again to preach in the church in Ephesus. He was so feeble that he had to be carried into the church. And the congregation eagerly awaited the sermon of this great man of God. Finally, John stood up, gazed at the congregation and said, little children, love one another. And he sat down. Yes, love is what the church is to be all about. And it is my prayer that our little Princess Evelyn and the princely Matthew might experience and learn about love in this church. And in turn, that they will grow up to be a woman and a man who will demonstrate God's love to others.